everyone. Welcome to Sabbath School Gems, where each week we showcase key concepts from this week's Seventh-day Adventist Sabbath School lesson. Hello, everyone. We are on Lesson 11 for the third quarter of 2022 and is titled Waiting in the Crucible, and it's for Sabbath, September 10, and it's from the quarterly In the Crucible with Christ. Now, this lesson study is on waiting Last week, we had a lesson on meekness, and there's some relationship between the two. The lesson study brings out Galatians 5.22, that patience is a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5.22 says, fruit of Spirit, love, joy, peace, long-suffering, which is, can also be patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness. And so we, this patience which we could say is related to waiting, is a fruit of the Spirit. We also know that it's related to meekness, which is also a good characteristic. And we saw that in, in last week's gems, Psalm 37, it says, Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass, Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret. It only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. And then just a couple verses later, it says, but the meek shall inherit the earth. So those who wait on the Lord shall inherit the earth, but the meek shall inherit the earth. So there's a relationship between those who wait on the Lord, the waiting on the Lord, and meekness. And we'll see that now last week's lesson study, I don't look ahead at these, but there's some overlap because I went into Psalm 37 for meekness, and this lesson study brings out Psalm 37 for waiting. Well, there is a relationship between the two, but we'll also see that it's different. I think people that are meek will exhibit this waiting on the Lord, but what does waiting mean? And I think the best thing, this, this is a gem that I discovered that I think is really important. I, w- I just want to start out with it because it's so beautiful and I think it's so fundamental and I think it'll set the whole tone for this. That word, that Hebrew word for wait is kava. And it means to bind together or to gather or twist together and to expect and look forward to. And You know, when I first saw that back in the last week's lesson, I kind of mentioned that, but I didn't really understand what what does that mean, like bind together? What does that have to do with waiting and gathering and then just twisting? And what does this have to do with weight? And then it hit me. What would they as a people be anticipating more than anything else? They would be waiting for the harvest. You know, you you prepare the soil, you plant the seed, you water or you make sure it has everything it needs. You prepare and you watch this plant grow and you hope for the rain or whatever happens. All these things are happening, but it's all to come to a head at the harvest. That's the most important part. Are you going to get a crop? Are you going to get that fruit or are you going to get that grain? Everything is anticipating that harvest. Everything you do from the preparing the soil to sowing the seed, for hoping for the rain, for watching the plant grow, it's all 
going toward that harvest. So the whole time, you're looking forward to that harvest. And so that's this word, wait, is tied up with that. So this bind together or the twisting, the twisting what you would have like twine, you would bind and gather the sheaves together. It's, it's harvest terminology. It means expecting or looking forward to. So in other words, when the Hebrew word is translated as waiting for the Lord, it's really saying anticipate. You're looking forward to it. You're not just waiting in a passive thing like, oh no, it's okay, it's, it's going to be a long ways off. But it's more, what do we do with the Sabbath, the seventh-day Sabbath? Do we just sit around and wait? Okay, well, we're waiting for the Sabbath. No, we go through the week, but every day we get closer to that Sabbath day. Every day we're looking forward, we're looking toward that. In fact, even people who keep Sunday, even people that aren't religious, at least here in the United States where we have a weekend, when we have Saturday and Sunday, usually off from our job, they look forward to Friday. Everybody looks forward to Friday because they know Saturday is, is next and they, they don't have to go to work. And so even in this secular world, there's an anticipation for Sabbath. And it's that, it's that anticipation, that waiting. And so I think it's really interesting that that word wait is tied up with this harvest and, and, and with this time element of looking forward and anticipating something. So I think this is going to be helpful for us to really understand what waiting in the crucible means. Now, the lesson study brings up things like, you know, why do we have to wait so long for things? And waiting is painful and learning patience is not easy. It brings up Psalm 27, 14, where it says, wait on the Lord, be of good courage, and he shall strengthen your heart. Wait, I say on the Lord. And I think they're trying to imply that by, see, he has to strengthen your heart because, you know, waiting is hard. But if you look at what the Bible is saying, this waiting is not painful. In fact, God is linking the waiting with, with comfort. It's a comfort type of waiting. You know, we can wait where we're uncomfortable, but this is a wait where it's comfortable. Romans 15, 4 and 5, which the lesson study brings out, says, for what, what's, whatever things were written before were written for our learning, that we through patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. We see that patience and comfort together. And then the next verse says, Now may the God of patience and comfort grant you to be like-minded toward one another, according to Christ Jesus. Why is this? Now, this, this is the Greek word, hupomene. It means to stay behind or to linger or to endure. So it's this, this endurance. But it's also saying that this God of endurance, this God of lingering, it's almost like a play on words, but he gives us hope. He gives us his comfort. And so when we think about waiting, if we're looking forward to something good, that wait is, is comforting. It's comforting because you know something is going to come that's good. And so instead of it being a wait, like, like I hate waiting in line. <laughs> I, there's, there's stores I will not shop at because I cannot stand to wait in line. I just do not like waiting in line. I don't like wasting time and just waiting around, but this isn't that kind of wait. 
This is not an uncomfortable weight. This is a weight in anticipation. You know, the lesson study brings up this experiment that they did with kids. And I'm sure that it's repeated. The one that I saw a recording of was a little bit different, I think, because it was a, it was a, a little bit different reward. So I think it was a little different. And if I can find that video, I'm going to put it in the show notes because it's really, really good video. I think maybe it was done in the maybe the 80s, early 90s or, or something. But it's, they photographed these kids and they told them, they, they gave them a plate with a marshmallow on it. And they said, you can eat this marshmallow right now or you can wait, wait till we come back in the room. And when I come back in the room, I'm gonna bring you another marshmallow and some chocolate. So if you wait, you can have that other marshmallow and the chocolate. But if you just eat this now, then you're just gonna have this one marshmallow. And so they tell the kids this, they put them in a room and they videoed them in this room. And these are young kids and they're maybe four or five that, that age. And so they put them in this room with this marshmallow and you can see some of them, as soon as they say, you can eat this now, that's like all they hear. And it's just gobbled up instantly because that's just, I can eat this now. That's, it's like, that's all they hear. But there's different kids react different ways. You know, some of them are like, oh, I think I'll just taste it. They kind of like pick it up and smell it and lick it. And, you know, I'm not really eating it. They'll pick little pieces off. It, it's really a good video. You have to see it. But there's two of the kids really stand out in my mind. One is a girl, and you can tell that she's probably a little bit more mature for her age. She understands it, and she's going to wait, and she knows she's gonna wait. And so she's waiting, but she is miserable. You can see it on her face. She has this face of disgust. Like she, she knows what's going on, and she's just saying to herself, this is so unfair. Like, what are they doing? Why do I have to look at this thing? And they're making me wait. And this is just not fair at all. I am not happy. You can just see her face. And pretty soon she pushes the marshmallow away, like out of her view. Like she's saying, I don't even want to see this thing because she's in such agony. And she's just so full of like, this is not fair. And she pushes it away. Like, I don't even want to see this. This is just torturing me. And, and, and so that's a weight where she's being tortured. Like every second she's being tortured. Now there's another one of this boy and you can tell this boy, maybe it's his temperament, but it may just be his family. He probably has parents that he can really trust and that they've taught him to be obedient because one of the things, and, and I think obedience is part of this trust, this, this waiting, is that when they tell him that they're gonna bring in this other marshmallow with some chocolate, it's like he knows at that point that that's a good thing. It's almost as if he's hearing them say, you can eat this now, but really it would be really good if you just wait, because if you wait, you're gonna get a lot more and so that's the best thing to do. And it's almost like he, as an obedient child, is like, okay, you know, that makes sense. Like he trusts adults. He trusts that they're going to come back probably in a short time period. And so you can see, you can see in his face that he's just, you know, okay, I'll wait, you know, and he's, he's perfectly fine with it. And, and he's just as excited when they bring that other marshmallow with the chocolate. He's just as excited as the other ones. 
But you can see that he's comfortable almost in waiting because it's almost like he knows that they're going to come back and he knows he's going to get that, that prize. And so he's fine with it. He's resolved it in his head. And the difference is in the head that the difference is what is going on inside of us. It's still the same amount of time. It's still the same reward at the end. It's still the same temptation in front of all these kids. But one is uncomfortable. Many of them were very uncomfortable. And, and this one boy was very comfortable. And it's all because of what's in the head. And I think what God's trying to do is he's trying to give us things that will comfort us so that we know when we have that view, we have that view of that holy city, we have the view of him coming and taking his people and being off of this planet and, and having an end to sin when we see that and we see it in our mind, are we going to be tortured or are we going to be encouraged? And I think that's what he wants to do. He wants to comfort us. So this waiting is not painful. It shouldn't be hard to learn patience and be painful thing. It should be comforting because we have that vision in our mind. We have it in our heart. Now, another thing that I think God wants us to have is this is this comfort is, is very complete. In other words, even if things go wrong or there's tribulations or there's trials, it can make that comfort even stronger. Because I look at Romans, that the text that the lesson study brings out, Romans 5 um, and 1 through 4, and I'm just going to read it. It says, Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ through whom we also have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we're rejoicing in hope of the glory of God. And then it says, and not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. And so it's almost like even if there's tribulations, it's just going to make that hope stronger. It's going to make that anticipation stronger. And so it's going to give us even more strength to wait on the Lord, if you want to call it that, because, because it's going to help us to look forward even more. So if we're comforted by looking forward to what God is going to have in store, then even tribulations are going to make us look forward even more. So instead of being in a hindrance and, oh, no, I got to go through tribulations and now I got to, and God's delaying and he's not coming and now I have to suffer. And instead of wallowing in all that, we can be strengthened and say, okay, I am just going to look even more toward God's kingdom. I'm going to wait even more for him. I think that's what God wants for us. Now, Monday's lesson is titled In God's Time, and it's talking about Daniel. And it, it brings up the verse, Daniel 9, 24, which says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city to finish the transgression, to make an end of sins, to make recon reconciliation for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, and to anoint the most holy. We know that Daniel was seeing visions way in the future at the end of time. And we know that there's these time elements, there's these 70 weeks, there's the 2300 days, there's all these time prophecies. And so we get this 
sense that God has certain timing and it's it's in his time it's it's the timing that he set up and you know Daniel is discouraged at first because he, he wants relief immediately he doesn't want all these things to happen and this scary beast to come and this it just seemed like for him it was so far in the future and that was discouraging to him because he want he wanted deliverance right then but you know god told him seal this up until the time of the end so he was comforted knowing that okay it's in the future but it's there and it's going to be worked out in god's time i think what's most noteworthy in daniel when we're talking about this idea about waiting I think of verse 10, 13, where it says, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. And behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. So this angel comes to visit him, but he's like, well, I was tied up with this prince of the king of Persia, and I was tied up for 21 days, but I heard you, but I couldn't come to you because I was tied up with this other prince for 21 days. I, that, ever since I first heard that verse, it really stuck in my head that this is really interesting. This angel is tied up with a, another you know, job. It's like he can't come to Daniel right away. But we don't realize it, but you know, we think that God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He's everything. He knows everything at every time. But... I think even God is working within time elements. I mean, he, he set up a week for us, and there's a special holy day. I think he's here with us in, a, in a, a greater way. There's times when we're in trouble, when we cry out to him. I think he comes to us in a greater way. I don't think he's just always there, all the same, kind of just sitting at the same desk all day, you know, waiting for us to come into the office. I think he's he's got schedules. There's things happening. There's there's time frames, and I think he's trying to work within our time frame. And then I think of Daniel twelve thirteen, where it says, "But you go your way till the end, for you shall rest and will arise to your inheritance at the end of the days." That also tells us that he was telling Daniel, "Okay, these things are going to be shut up." And they're going to be closed until the time of the end. But you just go your way and you're going to rest and, and you're going to rise. So we see that God has this timing. And there's Daniel, because he's a prophet looking way into the future, we can see that really well in that book of Daniel. Now Tuesday's lesson brings out the story of David. And we know David gets anointed as, as a young kid. I mean, he's, when, when Samuel comes to visit the family, they said, are these all the brothers? Oh, no, the youngest one's out in the field. And we know that story, and he brings in David. And David's the one who gets anointed. So we know, and David knows, that he's going to be taking the kingdom from Saul. And he's given multiple opportunities to just, knock Saul off. Saul's causing problems. He's pursuing him. He's, he's, gonna, he's ready to kill David. And David gets these opportunities that he could, he could kill Saul so easily and just take over the kingdom, but he doesn't do it. One of these is recorded in 1 Samuel 26, 9 through 11. It says, but David said to Abishai, do not destroy him for who can stretch out his hand against the Lord's anointed and be guiltless. So David's saying, don't kill Saul. 
And David said, furthermore, as the Lord lives, the Lord shall strike him, or his day shall come to die, or he shall go out to battle and perish. Who knows? Who knows how the Lord is going to do it? But it says, the Lord forbid that I should stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. But please take now the spear and the jug of water that are by his head and let us go. So they took the spear and the water, but they didn't hurt Saul. And there's multiple incidences where we have where you know one david clips his garment there's multiple opportunities that he has but he doesn't do it and you can see how he's really setting a good example by allowing god to do it in his time and his way i think this is a really good example of waiting in the sense of letting god work things out in his time he says the Lord, the Lord shall strike him, or his day will come. He'll just die of old age, maybe, or he shall he'll go out and battle and perish, or whatever happens. It's going to be in God's way and God's time. David was not going to do it. Now, some people could say, in one instance, all of Saul's men, all the, the army, was asleep. They were like so asleep. Now. That's pretty unusual for everyone. I mean, they're in battle, they're, they're soldiers, and they're all asleep. David could have easily said, well, you know, wow, they're all asleep. Well, God must want me to do this. You know, this is a miracle. They're all sleeping, and I have this opportunity to kill Saul. And, or the second time he had the opportunity, he could have said, well, the Lord gave me one opportunity, and I didn't take it, but, you know, but now he's given me again, so it must be, it must be I should take it. You know, David never did that, though. He always erred on the side of, yeah, this kind of looks weird. Maybe God wants this, but no, I'm not going to reach out my hand. I'm not going to kill Saul is still the Lord's anointed. And you can see how when we follow God, when we allow him to work in his time, everything works out for the best. This is better for David. It's better for his kingdom because it's showing him in the eyes of the people as a good king. Nobody wants a ruler who's just going to knock off his enemies. I mean, we have that, I think we're almost to that point here in the United States where I think it's, things are heating up so much politically. I think people do just want to knock off their enemies, but that's not how it works. And God sets up kings and he takes them down and David recognizes that. And that's a sign of a good leader. You want somebody who's going to follow what the Lord wants. He's not just going to take opportunities to, to kill off Saul. He's going to let God do it. And so it shows him as good, but he also puts Saul in a good light because he says, I'm not going to stretch out my hand against the Lord's anointed. So David is really a good leader here because the people are seeing this and they're saying, wow, David's not one to just kill Saul. And look at this. He's calling him his Lord's anointed. And so he's almost protecting Saul. He's saying, yeah, I'm not going to do it. If I'm not going to do it, you know, I don't think anybody else, if, if David's not going to do it, and he would ha be the one that would have the most reason and authority to do it, who is that anyone else to do it? So I think he's really giving respect to the kingship here, showing respect for Saul. And he's also, you know, putting Saul in a good light. He's still calling him the Lord's anointed. Yeah, he had a lot of problems. Yes, he was out to kill him. It's his enemy. But he's still calling him the Lord's anointed. And so that's what happens when we do good. 
it may make our enemies look good too. That's okay. That's okay because God is taking care of those things and he'll give us what we need. And the most important thing is, is that we are following God and that's what David was doing. Now, I think we can contrast this with just take Abraham and Sarah, reading in Genesis 16, 2 through 4. It says, So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. Then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband Abram to be his wife, after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. And we know that story. And we know that is a case of not waiting. Now, they did wait a long time. They got to a point where Sarah thought she wasn't going to have children. She hadn't had children for a long time. So they were getting antsy. And so they thought they would help God out. God had told Abram that he was going to have many children and many descendants and everything. And he knew that. And here he was, here Sarah was too, because she knew they were going to help God out. They were going to bring it in what God wanted. And, and see, this is the problem that God has is, you know, we want to know what is going to happen. And he wants to tell us, he wants us to be, to, to know. But when he tells us something, then we want to start taking things into our own hands or, oh, God told me this, so I'm going to do this. And so it's hard for God to tell us. I think, I think he would tell us a lot more than he does if we would be able to handle it better. You know, if we handled it and said, okay, that's going to be, okay, I'll, I, I'll put that in the back of my head, God, and I'll just, you know, and I'll do the best I can and I'll listen to you and I'll follow you and when that happens, it happens. But instead we say, oh, when is it going to be? You know, like uh, Samson's parents where they said, you know, oh, well, what's his occupation? What's this? What's that? And, and the angel says, just do what I said. Just, you know, stay away from the fruit of the vine and don't drink alcohol and do all these things because you're going to have a special child. And But they want to know everything. They want more. And I think sometimes we get into that. We don't let if we knew more about what God was going to do, we might take things into our hands. So, well, the Lord wanted me to do this ministry and he wants me to do this and this. And we, and then we go off and we stop listening to God because he told us one thing and then we just take it from there. So it's really hard for God, I think, to communicate with us because we don't have this patience and we're not willing to say, okay, let me listen to you and keep listening to God, not just the one thing that he says, but everything else, you know, being led by him. And this is a case where Abraham and Sarah knew something and they waited, but they were getting impatient. And I think at some point they said, well, maybe God wants us to do this. And we know that that wasn't the right thing. We know what happened with that and the problems that came from that. I think it was the same thing with Jacob, I think Jacob was going to get the spiritual blessing, but, you know, he did it by deceit. Genesis twenty-seven thirty-five. but he said, your brother came with deceit and has taken away your blessing. So he stole it from Esau, and then he had problems. Later on, Genesis 20, 32, 6 and 7, and the messengers returned to Jacob saying, 
We came to your brother Esau, and he's coming to meet you with 400 men are with him. So Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that were with him. So he's, he had to go away from Esau. He had to be, you know, separated from his mother and father for all those many years. And then he had to come back. And when he was coming back with all his family at that time, and then he, he was so worried. And they said, yeah, we see Esau coming. He's got 400 men with him. And so Jacob was afraid and he was distressed and everything. So why did he have to go all through that? Because he jumped ahead and deceived his father to give him the blessing, which God would have given him anyway. He was going to get that spiritual blessing anyway, but he had to take it upon himself. And so anytime we jump ahead of God, that's what happens. And it's not a good thing. So these are examples of, of people that didn't wait on God. Now, Wednesday's lesson gives a story about Elijah and that showdown on Mount Carmel. And it's just such a great story. It's great for so many different things, but I don't want to focus on that so much, on, on what the lessons that he has. You can go back and go with the lessons that he has. But I want to read in 1 Kings 19, 10 through 12. I think the lesson might actually have 1 through 9. But I, I think 10 through 12 is where it really speaks to me about waiting. And I'm just going to read that. It says, so, so this is after Elijah is done all that great work and killed the, those prophets of Baal and they had the fire come down and everything. And now he's fleeing and he's in a cave and, he's, and Jezebel has told him that, you know, he's going to kill him. So he flees. Well, let me just read that. First Kings 19, 1 through 9. It says, And Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done, that he, you know, brought the fire down and licked up all the water in the moat and everything. Also how he had executed all the prophets with the sword. So he slayed all the prophets. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So let the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as like the life of one of them by tomorrow about this time. So she's saying, I'm going to kill you. And when he saw that, he arose and ran for his life and went to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. And he prayed that he might die and said, It is enough now, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my father's. He was so discouraged and scared and everything else. And then he, as he lay there and slept under the broom tree, suddenly an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. Then he looked, and there by his head was a cake baked on coals and a jar of water. So he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came back the second time and touched him and said, Arise and eat, because the journey is too great for you. So he arose and ate and drank, and he went in the strength of that food forty days and forty nights as far as Horeb, the mountain of God. And there he went into a cave and spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, what are you doing here, Elijah? Now, I think this is really good because he, God is encouraging him. That food that he's feeding him, I think is really symbolic. He's giving him this encouragement to go on and to do the work. God doesn't ask us to do things without giving us the strength to, to do it. And this is clearly a time when Elijah needs the strength. 
he's ready to die and he's discouraged and God strengthens him. And I think that's such a beautiful thing. But the next verses, I think, is really what speaks to me about waiting. And I'm going to read that starting, so 1 Kings 19, starting verse 10. It says, so he said, this is Elijah answering God. He says, I have been very zealous for the Lord God of hosts, for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. I am alone left, and they seek to take my life. Now he thought he was the only one left that served God, the only one of the prophets. But God tells him that he's not. There's, there's a lot more than him. But Elijah doesn't know that at the time. Then reading on in verse 11, so God is going to speak back to answer Elijah. Then he said, go out and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by and a great and strong wind tore into the mountains and broke the rocks in pieces before the Lord. But the Lord wasn't in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a still small voice. And the Lord was in that still small voice. So we can see, to me, this is waiting. Because it was this great strong wind. And then there was this earthquake. And then there was this fire. And there was all these things happening. At any point in time, Elijah could have said, well, surely it's God talking now, or he's talking now. But it wasn't any of those things. And to me, this shows waiting. This shows waiting on the Lord. He's waiting to hear that voice. He's not letting all these other things interfere with that. So the lesson didn't bring that out. But to me, that's the story of Elijah brings that to mind as far as waiting. And then the lesson gives these other examples. It does bring up Samson and Zebedee's sons and Moses striking the rock. And I'm not going to go into those. You can go into those. But I, I think most of these things, like Samson, when he says, go get that wife for me, he wasn't thinking about his role that God gave him. He was just thinking about this wife that he wants, this girl that he saw that he likes. To me, that's not really so much about waiting or not waiting to me these examples like moses striking the rock and samson and zebedee's sons which i brought up last week even though i didn't read ahead i had no idea but these things are more i think more stories for meekness because i think these things are showing not meekness these are showing just doing things in your way the way you want it to do it and being presumptuous and rushing ahead and kind of acting presumptuously. So to me, these are like the opposite of meekness. And I encourage you, if you haven't listened to last lesson study, last week's lesson study, to go and listen to it because I think it'll help also with this because I do think there is a link between meekness and waiting. And so I'm not going to go into those. But what I am going to go into is a story that I think I don't know why they didn't put this story in when they're talking about waiting. And that's the story of Noah. And I'm going to read in Genesis 6, verse 8. It says, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. And then in verse 13 and 14, and God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood 
make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and outside with pitch. So God is telling Noah to make this ark. I mean, there's never been a flood. There's never been a flood like that before, um, probably anything close to it. And, you know, even now, we've never had anything this catastrophic happen. But yet he's telling us to do this. To me, this is this whole incident of Noah, I think really exemplifies this idea of waiting. So God tells us to build this ark. And then verse 17 says, And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, which is in the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die. So he's telling him that. And then he says, And you shall take food for yourself, all the food that is eaten, you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them. Because he's going to take all the animals in. And so Noah did according to all God commanded him. So he did. And there's several verses where it always says Noah did according to all God commanded. So it says what God commanded, and then it always says Noah did everything that God commanded. And it just kind of repeats that in, in Genesis 7, 5, and Noah did according to all the Lord commanded him. There's multiple places where it says that. And I think that's significant because it shows that Noah is going by the Lord every step of the way, and he's doing everything that the Lord is telling him to do. Somebody might think, well, that's not waiting, but it is. It's this waiting, this it's anticipation because he's preparing. You know, we could, we could look at every place in the Bible that it says wait on the Lord and we can say prepare and anticipate his kingdom. Prepare for and look forward to God's kingdom. What if we did that and separated everything where it says, um, like in Psalms, for evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth. What if we say, but those, instead of saying, but those who wait on the Lord, those who look forward and prepare for his kingdom, they shall inherit the earth. I mean, it, we could rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in the way because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. That's Psalm 37, 7. What if we said, rest in the Lord and look forward and prepare for his kingdom? Do not fret because of him who prospers in this way, because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. Cease from anger and forsake wrath. Do not fret, it only causes harm. For evildoers shall be cut off. But those who look forward and prepare for God's kingdom, they shall inherit the earth. I think we should go back every place where it says wait and substitute in that, because I think that's really what's happening. And here with Noah, he's preparing and anticipating this flood in every step of the way. Genesis 7, 5, and Noah did according to all that God commanded him. 7, 1, then the Lord said to Noah, come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. And then in Genesis 7, 4, it says, for after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth, 40 days and 40 nights, and I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. He's telling him, what's going to happen, when it's going to happen. He's going to have seven more days. Genesis 7, 10, it says, And it came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. And the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights, just as he told Noah. And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. I don't think he told Noah that exactly. He didn't know ahead of time exactly how long. But... 
In Genesis 8.1, it says, Then God remembered Noah and every living thing and all the animals that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind to pass over the earth, and the water subsided. I think it's interesting that it says, Then God remembered Noah. It's like, well, did he forget him? <laughs> he's, he's got this, this boat with the only living creatures on the whole planet in this boat, and God's forgetting about him. I just think that's funny. But anyway, Genesis 8, 4 says, And the ark rested in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month, on the mountains of Ararat. We know this is a big process. This isn't just 40 days and everything dries up and then he gets out of the ark. This is a big process. So it, it rains for 40 days and 40 nights. But then the ark rests in the seventh month on the 17th day of the month on the mountains of Ararat. And that word rest is not, it's not sabbat, it's nuach. But it's, it's, it's settling. It's settling in the seventh month, the 17th day of the month. And I think I've talked about this before, but what is the seventh month and what is the 17th day of that month? The seventh month is, is an important month. That's when you have trumpets at the beginning of the seventh month, the first day. You have Day, Atonement, day of Atonement on the 10th day. So you think, well, what is the 17th day? Well, the 17th day falls inside of tabernacles tabernacles is a seven day feast and then there's an eighth day at the end which is a holy sabbath day so the first day of tabernacles is a holy sabbath day and then there's there's seven days total and then the eighth day is a holy sabbath day so the 17th day would be inside of that because it would start on the 15th day and then it would be eight days from there so the 17th day would be inside of that tabernacles. Why is that important? You know, some people say that God's calendar, oh, that was just given to the Jews at Mount Sinai, which they say, which some people say about the Sabbath, oh, that was just for the Jews, it was given at Mount Sinai. And, you know, we say no. It, it's from the very beginning in Genesis. We have the very first chapter of Genesis, we have the Sabbath being created. So we know that it, it predated that time on Mount Sinai. Well, this is also evidence that God's calendar and his, and his feasts predated that as well, that, that they were from the beginning. You know, it says God made the moon, the sun, the, 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 the lights in the sky to mark the moeds. Those are, moed is an appointment time. So he put them in to mark the the sacred and holy appointment times. And so these are appointments that God has that he set in the sky at creation. And then we see this evidence of the ark. It just happened to rest in this 17th day of the, of the month, which I don't know this for sure, but I'm just wondering if this year, this seventh, the seventh day Sabbath, inside of tabernacles maybe that was on that day maybe the ark rested on the the seventh day weekly sabbath that was inside of tabernacles it could have because tabernacles is seven days plus the eighth day so it there could have been a set on the 17th day could have been a sabbath day i don't know but it just makes you wonder of all the days why did it happen within that time of tabernacles and then it says in verse Genesis 8, 5, and the waters decreased continually until the 10th month. 
And in the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. So it came to pass at the end of 40 days that Noah opened the window of the ark which he had made, and he sent out a raven which kept going to and fro until the waters had dried up from the earth. Then he sent out from himself a dove to see if the waters had receded from the face of the ground. But the dove found no resting place for the sole of her feet, and she returned into the ark, for the waters were on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and drew her into the ark himself, and he waited yet another seven days. And again he sent the dove out from the ark. Then the dove came to him in the evening, and behold, a freshly plucked olive leaf was in her mouth, and no one knew that the waters had receded from the earth. So what is going on here? Why am I even bringing up this story? Because it's showing a timeline, and it's showing Noah waiting on the Lord. I mean, here he's sending out these animals, these birds. He's trying to figure out when is the time when we can get out of this ark. You know, the water subsided, the, the ark rested, so it's not moving, but there's still a lot of water on the earth. So he's sending out these birds, and he's waiting, he's waiting to know God's time here. I think he's, he's sending out these animals, and then he had to wait another seven days, and he sent the dove out, and the dove comes back with the olive leaf. So he waits another seven days, then he sends out another dove, or maybe it's the same dove, and it doesn't return. So then, it says in Genesis 8, 13, it says, and it came to pass in the 600th year, 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, that the waters were dried up from the earth, and Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and indeed the surface of the ground was dry. Isn't it just interesting that he looks at the surface of the earth and it's dry on the first month and the first day of the month? And, and people will say that the calendar is, doesn't exist or didn't happen till Mount Sinai, but you know, there's clearly some calendar that God has. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because when we talk about waiting, and especially now that we understand the word of waiting, it's a looking forward to, it's an anticipation. How much, and, and, the, and the comfort that God wants to give us, he doesn't want us to wait in this, nervous waiting or, you know, just all agitated. He wants us to have comfort. And the one way that we can have comfort is to understand his calendar and to understand that things happen to a calendar. Even if we don't understand everything about it or maybe what we should be doing or anything, we can at least acknowledge that God has a calendar. He has special appointment times. He calls them moeds. And it's, one of them is the weekly Sabbath, but there's also other days. And just by realizing this and understanding it better, we can have that comfort. We know that God is working within a calendar. We might not know exactly everything at first, and we may not know the future and be able to put it on a calendar, but look, Noah didn't know that either. He's sending out animals. He's He's trying to figure out when he's going to come out of the ark. And that's the kind of model I think that we should be following when we are waiting. It's not a waiting as in we're just sitting around doing nothing. It's an anticipation. It's a preparation. And it's listening to God. It's listening to him and his timing. And maybe things seem like, you know, it seemed like maybe it was a good time for him to send out that raven, but it wasn't time yet. 
And then maybe he was, he thought, well, I'll just wait another seven days and he sends out the dove, but it wasn't time yet. And see, it's the same thing with Elijah. He hears the, he sees the thunder and the, and the fire and, but it's not time yet. It's not time until he hears that still small voice. And so I think these are really good patterns. I'm just going to read Genesis 8, 14 through 16. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth was dried. Then, then God spoke to Noah saying, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wives with you. He finally tells him. So Noah is sending out all these birds and everything. But then God spoke to Noah, said, go out of the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your son's wife. So ultimately, all this happens. It's settling. The earth is dry on a certain day. But it's not until God actually speaks to Noah and says, go out of the ark, that he actually goes out. So he's waiting on God. It's not a passive thing. It's listening, being in tune with God, and in tune with his timing. So I think we've seen some good examples of waiting, that we know that it's not a passive thing. It's a listening. It's being in tune with God. It's being patient. And it's also something that should be comfortable. God wants us to be comfortable with it. And the more we know and, and trust him and see his kingdom coming soon and the sooner it, it approaches, I think that will be encouraging to us. And hopefully the waiting won't be agitated and hard to do, but it'll be comforting to do. And we'll, and we'll continue to ask God, when, when is the time? And if it's not right now, then we ask again. And we just ask again. And we do. And we do what God wants us to do. And I think that's the pattern of waiting that we should be following. And so may we all wait upon the Lord, that is, look forward to and prepare for his kingdom, and let the God of patience and comfort, as it says in Romans, turn any of our fear or anxiety into peace and pleasant anticipation. And I anticipate our meeting next week. Bye for now. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Sabbath School Gems. If you enjoyed this podcast, please subscribe, give us a rating, and spread the word to others. Comments and questions can be sent to us at sabbathschoolgems at gmail.com. Bye for now.